Well, folks, welcome to one more edition of Politics and Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. Uh, I am kind of all frazzled with watching Fonny Willis interview. It is a bomb, let me tell you. And just to show you how bomb it is, there is one piece that I cut out that I want you guys to listen to. I'm trying to get it brought into my system right here because there's one piece that I love that she said, and I'm going to play that. Right now, if I can, uh, if I can pull it up, if I can pull it up, Fanny Willis, I think I have it. I want you, first of all, let me go ahead and get the interview in that we are going to be listening to uh, today. But before we get to that interview, I want you guys to see the kind of contention that we have with Fanny Willis on that. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's, I have never seen something like this but anyway take a look at this this is how it starts so your office objected to us getting um delta records for flights that you may have taken when mr wade well no 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 look i object to you getting records you've been intrusive into people's personal lives you're confused you think i'm on trial these people are on trial for trying to steal an election in 2020 i'm not on trial no matter how hard you try to put me on trial so my question was do you have any problem? I object to getting any personal records of mine. We spend a lot of time deconstructing. I am so happy she came out swinging. This is a racket. And finally, I think Trump meets his match. She's not scared about if they're going to throw her off the case or not. She's going to make her case. And while the media was all scary when uh, she came, you know, uh, in the beginning, now they're starting to like, oh, my God, this woman means business. She is not. She is the honest Trump. I I just love the way Fonny Willis came out on this one. I don't know who's watching, but let me just tell you, folks, before we get started. Welcome aboard Lee Grant from uh, from Conroe. Well, I mean, from uh, Montgomery County. Welcome aboard Eric Hayes from uh out of Tascosita, Kingwood. We have Maywood from Long Beach, California. E2247 from all over then we have patrick baron patrick baron is from i think it's florida right help me out help me out patrick eric uh we also have melanie keelan from barcelona spain and uh we have bruce pollard how you doing my brother avq avq is sick oh my god sorry to hear that brother we got to get you better and of course we have yvette avery herod but i tell you what let's go ahead and listen to this interview that i did with the woman that is challenging, she is challenging Sheila Jackson Lee. Check this out, and then we'll take it on the other side. Let's see if I get it. Welcome to one more edition of Politics and Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. Thank you so kindly for being here today. We're honored to have Amanda Edwards. Amanda Edwards is running for... Uh, in the 18th congressional district here in Texas. She is up against incumbent Sheila Lee Jackson, and she's going to speak to us about why it is time for a change, why it is time for her to take the reins of the 18th congressional district. So let's go ahead and get started. Um, good morning, Amanda. First of all, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. And thank you so much for extending this platform for me to be able to talk about our message of delivering a change that people are looking for and deserve in our, our community. Uh, for those that are not familiar, um, I, I was born, raised, educated in the 18th Congressional District. Um, and to me, what happens here is very personal. Uh, my family's been here for generations and it's important that we get it right. Um, and I think we have seen so much dysfunction coming out of Washington. Uh, people are very fed up with the status quo and they want different results. And so sometimes if you are going to get something different, you're going to have to do something different. And that means in this election election cycle, voting differently. We've had the same leadership for the past 30 years. And, you know, it's time to start innovating, bringing a fresh perspective, new ideas, new approach, new solutions to some of the lingering challenges that we face. And at the very same time, it's also needed that we have a 
proactive vision for this community, meaning how do we create an 18th congressional district, a broader Houston community, a broader regional community, a broader community as a whole that in which everybody in it can have the opportunity, not just to be there or get by there. We want them to thrive in it. And that's a proactive agenda that involves policy solutions, that involves us really um, diving deeply into systems change that is needed. Uh, we've got quite a bit of quite a few systems that don't work very well for us. And somehow we just continue to work through those systems as opposed to reinvent or reimagine what they ought to be and create that. Um, and that's what I'm here to do. I'm very excited about using all of the elements of the, of the platform of the 18th congressional district, meaning advocacy, meaning showing up in the district, meaning constituent response, but also meaning driving policy. And that's been something where we have not seen a lot of policy coming out of the 18th congressional district under the current leadership. And, and that's going to be a, a stark contrast with me. Now, whenever uh, you're, as you're asking the, the constitu your constituents in the 18th district to, to, to make a choice, uh, let me first point out that I think it is important that we've we constantly get new blood into a system. That's how you get something churning. But at the same time as well, what has, uh, in fact, I think uh, for the most part, uh, the Democratic Party has an issue with uh, keeping its youthful uh, issue with, uh, I mean, and that's from the president all the way down. Uh, is, is that the only option that we have? But then again, you're asking the constituents to create a balance. Here's the question. Seniority, somebody with experience, somebody new with new ideas. There must be a balance there in the minds of people. What are, what's your message intent on telling them, yes, seniority is important, but also we need to look at new innovations. We need to look at keeping our pumps primed. Great question. Um, and it's a ripe question. Um, you know, I get that question quite often. And the truth of the matter is what are, you know, it, it has to be about having the right solutions and the right approach um, in order to get the right outcomes. And right now, what good is the seniority if that's not being applied in a manner that gets you the outcomes that you need and deserve? That's the point. You need a different take. You know, I'm talking about systems change. I don't hear that coming out of, you know, um, the agenda of the current current office holder in, in terms of systems change and, and the things that are broken. Yes, we can both identify problems, but the way to go about solving them are very different. One, of course, in my realm will lead to the results. And so, yes, there are benefits for having seniority, but you, you got to actually be using the seniority to uh, achieve the results. And so if people are satisfied with where we are, then by all means, continue and stick with what you've done. But if you are someone who is dissatisfied, you've got to look at something different. Otherwise, I mean, there there is, you know, you can't keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And that's that precisely... Insanity, I think, right? Is that, that, that's, that's what it is. So, but that's precisely the phenomenon. And you can use the argument, oh, well, I have seniority, but what good has the, you know, what has the seniority resulted in in your life? Has it led to the transformative changes that you're looking for? I go on the doorsteps, I'm listening to residents. That's what they want. When I was on city council, so just a little bit about my background, I, came back home to Houston. I graduated from Eisenhower, went to Emory, went to Harvard, came back home, practiced law as a public finance attorney, got very involved civically in the community, and then um, started to really um, uh, get involved in public service by way of, of city council. And I became one of the at-large city council members. And when I became one of the city, city council members at large, Harvey happened. And of course, you know, just like I do, what the $125 billion of damage can do um, and what 51 inches of rainfall can be. And so 
when that happened, I remember getting a call to go check on some of our seniors. And I learned that a number of our lower income seniors, they were cleaning up the house, but they were not getting those walls that had been sold by the floodwater removed from the homes. And that means you're going to get mold. So we mobilized hundreds of volunteers, started going door to door. And the first thing that would happen is when I'd step foot on those doorsteps, they'd say, what are you doing here? And I'd say, I'm your city council member. I'm here to help. And then they'd say, but wait a minute, are you up for re-election already? <laughs> and they would be so puzzled that I was standing on their doorstep and it wasn't election season and anything. I was just there to do my job. But we've conditioned people to believe that the only time we're going to stand up or be present for them is when we need something from them as opposed to be there to deposit in their lives. And so we've got a, a major shift needed to show up and deliver the results. I think that delivering part is the piece that is missing right now. Uh, people can feel alignment with someone or no familiarity with someone, but you got to deliver for them because that's what they're sending you in office to do. So you got, like I said, you know, you know, I can't say that seniority doesn't matter because obviously it does have some impact, but you've got to ask the question, what is the seniority being used to do? And am I satisfied with the, the resulting change or, or not? And you've got to answer that question when you, you cast your ballot. I've got a track record of delivering. Um, I have a track record of being able to work in difficult, difficult environments and deliver what people don't expect. And that's, you know, what I'm running on is, is the ability to deliver results in a new way, in a different way. Why are we sending, you know, it's just systems that don't even make sense, right? With infrastructure investment, how it works, it doesn't make sense. Why are we sending dollars over to GLO to decide how flood mitigation dollars get distributed for Houston? That's a federal issue in terms of how the dollars flow, right? And, and yet, and still everybody says, oh, this is not my fault. This is that agency, that agency or that group. But the system was designed, uh, you know, with flaws in the first place. And that came from the feds. So we have to take a step back, take some ownership, fix it and do right by our people. And you need sometimes a fresh, you know, on this leg of the relay, you need a, you know, fresh perspective, a fresh pair of eyes. We're looking at this stuff for the same, you know, same stuff for 30 years. It may not be you know, you don't, you don't may not see it with a, a different innovative approach. No, I think you're a bit, I read your bio and I think you're a bit humble in, in the amount of grassroots you've done. I've read about some of the stuff you've done in New Orleans with Katrina and these other things. So um, I, I think people will appreciate that we have people doing grassroots work. Um, as a grassroots activist myself, that is one of the things that um, that I find more impressive. Now, you'll be one of 435 people. That means that if you want to get something done, you have to have the ability to talk to people, to convince people to see things your way, to also have some trust in you. And um, right now we have a, a whole lot of young candidates, young representatives now. I mean, I I'm enthralled with, let's say, uh, Maxwell from Florida, Ocasio-Cortez from uh, New York. Uh, we also have Ilan Omar and um, uh, the, the teacher in New York, I can, Bowman, in, and uh, that are really agents of change. And I don't mean crazy change. I mean real change. Will you go there and try to establish yourself as a team to try to get things done? Uh, in, in a manner that actually helps the people needing help and not just those, the big fat cat, cat, cats with the big cash. Yeah, you've got to, you know, I, I think we have something on our materials placing people over politics. And that's very important to me. Um, I come from very, uh, you know, humble roots. Um, my grandfather was a longshoreman. Um, my uncles used to have a, a C, the CNL shoe shop on Lyons Avenue, just hardworking people. Um, and I know how important it is and how much, uh, the community depends on us not to forget about them and not to trade their interests off. And so that is something that is personal to me as well. Um, and something I'm committed to doing, um, and excited to do. I want to see the look on everybody's face when you deliver the things that we were talking about on the campaign and, and be able to say, remember when we were saying this, it's here. 
And, and that to me is what government should be able to do when it's functional. But right now we have a very dysfunctional government and we're not delivering very much at all. In fact, we just kind of play this game of who can secure power and who can, you know, thwart the other guy in our pursuit for power. You know, it's, it's, it's a weird game where the impact to the community is secondary to the desire to retain or claim power. And I understand why people need the power, right? Because that's how you get things done. It's the gas and the tank. But at the same time, it's so all or nothing in this moment that, that there's no semblance of, of, of compromise. I think we have got to get there in order to deliver for our, our residents and our communities. What uh, what issues are you going to Washington to fight for? In other words, not just platitudes. What are you going to go and try to get delivered to not only the 18th congressional district, but to the America as a whole? Yeah. So, you know, um, when I was growing up, my dad was very ill with something called multiple myeloma, which is a very aggressive form of cancer. Um, and he got diagnosed when I was 10 and he died when I was 17. Oh. Um, but it was through that journey that I witnessed him have that I really learned what our U.S. healthcare system was or wasn't by way of me asking my father a lot of questions like what happens if this insurance stuff doesn't support or take care of what you need in terms of his life saving treatments? And my dad's answers would be just terrible. He would say, well, we just have to figure out something else out. And I just did not at the time think that that was the right answer. I thought the right answer was that we actually have systems that work for people and their families and that they don't have to worry if something is going to cost them their lives because they get rejected by the insurance company or something like that. And that's not the system we have. And so at an early age, I really began to appreciate that these public offices, policy, law, all of this is about way more than just politics. It's about people's lives that hang in a balance every single day. And they're hanging in there in midst the decisions that we make or choose not to make. And uh, the measures we pass or fail to pass. And that gives me a very keen sense of urgency about what's needed in our community and really gives me that focus on the people over the politics because they're counting on us. Their lives are in the balance. And so it, it is, it's something that I, I think about. So when I am going to Washington, you know, obviously healthcare is a major issue in my mind. We've got to fix the Affordable Care Act right now. We still have millions of people, although they have insurance, um, they're underinsured right now. And and it's not just the Medicaid expansion, it's Medicaid expansion for states like Texas and more. We have a, a system that's not quite set up well enough yet. And it was never intended to start and end where it started and ended, but it got very political, um, very political, very fast. If you remember all the lawsuits that got thrown out, I mean, thrown about um, from the Republicans and it was very hot. And I understand why it had a chilling effect on dealing with this issue, but it still needs to be addressed. Economic opportunity is something else that's a priority of mine. Um, and when I say that, I'm looking at it from the lens also, not just from the end game, but how do you get there? So education, what these barriers are for these students accessing higher education is absurd. I mean, it is just absurd. It's so difficult expense wise. And we've got to tackle that. But separate from that, we also have to tackle what's happening once you do get your education. And once you do start earning a living, what about entrepreneurs? And, you know, we've got great disparities in our area, specifically our, for entrepreneurs of color, women, women own small businesses as well. Um, they face huge disparities when 
it comes to accessing capital, scaling their businesses. Um, traditional bank loans are not readily available to them. We could be moving dollars as the federal government into the hands of those lending institutions that will lend at greater rates to those sorts of businesses known as CDFIs. These are things that can be done from a policy level that can be game-changing on the ground if we bring those innovative ideas new approaches to the table. We saw it work when the PPP loans were distributed. You remember Shake Shack got 10 million, uh, but mom and pop had to shut down because they didn't have those pre-existing banking relationships. Okay. So just going with the big, big guys and the banks aren't going to get you to equitable outcomes necessarily, right? So how do we get to an equitable outcome? I remember when I started the work around city, the city's task force, I started the city's task force for women and minority small business owners. And we were talking about how Houston is the most diverse city in the nation. And I said, well, we might be the most diverse city in the nation, but what good is it if we're not resolving the challenges that our diverse communities face? That is the point of equity, right? And that's what we need to be focusing on. And I know there's a huge resistance right now. There are lawsuits all over the country trying to tear down DEI efforts, diversity, equity, inclusion efforts, trying to dismantle. I mean, we've had the affirmative action reversal. We've had so much, you know, in recent years, just, you know, taking away opportunity as opposed to uh, providing it. And my goal is to restore opportunity, enhance it, increase it, um, and really elevate us in a way that everybody in our community, no matter where they live, no matter what their background, will have the opportunity to thrive. So I, I really appreciate you letting me have this platform to share that. In politics, um, there are many stakeholders. Uh, yes, businesses are stakeholders and definitely a part, uh, but the citizenry, your your constituents should be stakeholders as well. They are those stakeholders that many a times get the least attention. There are a lot of um, activists in the field right now seeking to find out exactly what uh, what the constituency uh, needs, wants. You, you gave the, the that story of your father, sorry to hear about your father. It's been some time now, but you understand uh, the insur the health insurance mechanism here in the United States. Will you be open, not necessarily commit yourself to anything specific, but will you be open to science-based uh, Medicare change, uh, not Medicare changes, but changes in our healthcare system that mathematically works much better than the arcane system that we have right now? Uh, with, uh, with with a Frankenstein system of insurance companies and providers, et cetera. Yeah, we, I'm open to many all all concepts that are going to bring people the the results. And so, I I believe that we've got to look at ways to get there today because people can't wait for us to debate for five, six, seven, eight years. And we've got to also position ourselves to um, have some long-term answers. So I think there are short-term and long-term approaches that need to be taken. I also, it was a slip of the tongue, but I'm going to, I'm glad that you had Medicare, you kind of mentioned Medicare there because we got some problems right now with our seniors who are low income and fixed and have fixed incomes. The costs of Medicare right now for them are going up. And we've got to really, really take care of our most vulnerable. And so you can't have these costs going up and not providing them access to the resources to support themselves in order to pay for these increases. We cannot pass those costs on to our seniors in that way. That's just wrong. Um, and it's happening. So, yes. Absolutely, we'll be open to um, finding ways that we can get more people access to full the, to the coverage that they need. And so, absolutely, yes. And I would oh. just say, in closing, you know, as I mentioned, my father's situation. A lot of the times, you know, we've got some work done. I've talked to residents about them rationing, you know, especially these seniors on fixed income, trying to ration their drugs trying to figure out, oh, well, maybe I'll just take one pill instead of two. Now, I know the Inflation Reduction Act did address some of that, but it's not all of it. And we've got to get to uh, a space and place where seniors are not having to choose between prescription drugs and or their food or following the proper uh, prescription because they're not able to afford to do so. And that's just not right.
right? So we've, we've got a, we've got a lot of systems change that is needed. And yes, like I said, they are, there's some of that in the IRA, but it, it, it's not exhaustive. And for our seniors, when, I mean, for our seniors and all people, really, we, we've got to create better systems. One last question. And that it has to do uh, with many of the people, your own constituents, a lot of older people, there's this thing called Medicare Advantage that's been advertised and over-advertised to them that many a times causes them a whole lot of problems and costs, costs the federal government much more than traditional Medicare. We need somebody in Congress who would fight against these particular groups that are pretty much using, that are predatory on our older folks with giving them some free groceries here and transportation here into uh, marginalizing exactly what uh, traditional Medicare would otherwise offer them. Will you be going out there to ensure that they are no longer taken advantage of? We cannot in any way take advantage of our seniors. We cannot be putting our seniors in harm's way. And that is what our current system allows. Our current system allows our seniors to, I literally have this conversation probably every other week with somebody talking to me about what's happening, the stress that they are enduring because of increased costs, because of, you know, I can name a long list of things and we have not taken real effort to resolve that. I mean, we're just kind of watching our seniors suffer. And I've worked with, I remember working with a senior once that said that it had to go to the hospital and I was helping him with rebuilding his home. And I remember him saying to me at the, in the hospital, he said, they feed me too much. And I said, what? And wasn't expecting him to say that. And he said, they're feeding me too much. I mean, what? I said, what do you mean? And he said, when I get up, they feeding me, you know, during the middle of the day, they're feeding me before I go to bed, they're feeding me. And it was just such a, um, sad and striking uh, and compelling statement for him to have made because I knew how much he made off of his social security benefit. He did not have other income was, you know, $20,000 a year. And I also understood that when you have $20,000 a year to your name, um, that that means you probably don't eat three times a day. And it just, it broke my heart to hear that. And he had just grown accustomed to his, you know, one meal a day or whatever he was doing, you know, to, to make it all work. And he had grown accustomed to that. And I, and it, we can't have our seniors living like that. He was 84 years old. He was 85 when he passed. We can't have our seniors living like that. And we do, and we allow it and we turn a blind eye and I won't. So that is my commitment. Amanda, there's a lot more I'd love to ask you, but we don't have the time. So why don't you go ahead and give me a quick closer? Yes. Well, as I stated, uh, I am very excited about this campaign and this opportunity to serve. We have been endorsed by numerous entities ranging from Brady Pack to uh, Houston, uh, the Harris County Young Dems, to uh, Texas Coalition of Black Democrats, all organizations in between, as well as leaders like Commissioner Leslie Briones and Congress, former congressman of the 18th Congressional District, Craig Washington. We've had quite a bit of support amassed for us because people are ready and know that it's time for change. The seat doesn't belong to me or anyone else who is vying for this seat. It belongs to the people of the 18th Congressional District, and it is up to you to determine when it's time, how it's time to have the change that you're looking for and deserve. And so I encourage you, go early vote. That starts on the 20th of February until March the 1st. Make sure you vote early. But if you want to wait until Election Day, that is going to be March 5th. You can go online and and find ways to volunteer on our website, www.edwardsforhouston.com. And you can also visit us on our social media platforms, Twitter, EK Edwards TX or Amanda K. Edwards TX on Facebook and Instagram. I really want you to get involved because 
this politics of ours, this, this world of ours, it's not a spectator sport. It's for you to get engaged. If you want your voice heard, you got to go out and vote. You want different results. You're going to have to do something different. And we're excited about it. We think that we've got the community behind us. Um, they're ready. And so it's just a matter of getting folk out and participating so that their voice can be reflected in the votes. And of course, then the different results you'll get as a result. So I'm very grateful for the, the support we've extend, we've been extended to date and just encourage you to make sure you go vote. Vote by mail. Um, if for those that are seeking applications there, you can visit harrisvotes.com to get more information about that, your early voting locations, your polling day locations, all of those things are all, all available there. Um, great resource, but just make sure you go vote. Amanda Edwards, Democratic candidate in the 18th Congressional District in Texas. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics and Right. Thank you so much. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us, please join. Anyway, folks, I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed that. I sure did enjoy speaking to Amanda. I was going to get Sheila Jackson Lee to uh, come on as well. Uh, we couldn't get our times together, but I, uh, I still think there's a possibility that uh, we'll get her on as well. Anyway, how are my people doing? How are my peeps doing? Let me get a few things here settled. I want to make sure that I can uh, make sure that all the signals are correct. That's what I'm doing right now, making sure all our signals are correct and uh, and so forth. Anyhow, Eric Hayes apparently has something against Sheila Jackson Lee. He He cannot get off of it. He just has to get Sheila Jackson Lee. I think Sheila Jackson Lee has been an effective congresswoman. I do think that we need to have change at some time, whether it's this time or some other time. I don't know what it is. Okay. But anyway, folks, uh, let's go ahead. Oops, 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 oops. I got a problem here. I got a problem. There we go. I got that fixed. All right. All right. So let's see. Eric Hayes says, politics done right with Egberto Willis. Will you vote for Amanda? I haven't decided yet if I'm voting for Amanda or Sheila Jackson Lee yet. I want to hear both sides of the story. I want to make sure that it uh, ineffective. And like Amanda said, 30 years of waste. She has not been an ineffective congresswoman. Actually, Sheila Jackson Lee has brought a lot. Now, I do believe that we should have a change going forward. All right, let's see. Paul Fleming says, D.A. Fanny Willis. If you're a woman and you go on a date with a man, you better have $200 in your pocket. So if that man acts up, you can go where you want to go. I like what she's doing. Oh, she's not taking any crap. Let me play it for you guys again. I And I, I made a TikTok of it already while we were playing the last uh, the video. Check this out. So your office objected to us getting um, Delta records for flights that you may have taken when Mr. Wade. Well, no, no, no. I object to you getting records. You've been intrusive into people's personal lives. You're confused. You think I'm on trial. These people are on trial for trying to steal an election in 2020. I'm not on trial, no matter how hard you try to put me on trial. So my question was. I love I love what she did. I am not on trial. Anyway, come on in. Uh, I think this this sounds like Ray. Come on in, Ray. Uh, hey, Egberto. Yeah, I uh, didn't know what happened because I know you just had a, another video uh, jump on. I don't know if we're live or not because I know. It's no, no, we're we're live. Let me just YouTube. say, no, no, uh, we're in live. What happened is uh, I uh, the, the video is on a different channel and I have to actually link the channel to the telephones and I didn't get a chance to do that. But anyway, how are you doing, my friend? Talk to me. <laughs> Oh, man, I've been busy uh, out here in the streets, you know, boots on the ground, trying to uh, stomp for the candidates that I feel are most progressive. Now, um, 
basically with Amanda Edwards and Sheila Jackson Lee. Now, this is an interesting um, interesting race in Houston politics because a lot of people know Sheila Jackson Lee ran for mayor. Mm-hmm. What people may not know is that Amanda Edwards also ran for mayor, if right. you could recall back back then. And um, basically, you know, it became a situation where, you know, I would have loved for Sheila Jackson Lee to be mayor of Houston. Right. And then that seat would have been open for Amanda Edwards. Right. But here's the issue now. You have Amanda Edwards, who essentially dropped out of the mayor's race to for Sheila. give yeah. space for, yeah. for Sheila. And now Sheila is coming back to the 18th. But Amanda Edwards, you know, I, I, I could say in a stance, maybe not knowing Amanda, but having met her, she is very bright, very smart, very, pro- very progressive in a lot of her ideals. But, you know, if I were a constituent in that district, uh, the question I would have to ask would be the exact questions you presented to her. Because I feel that Sheila Jackson Lee in her time was an effective congressperson. And so does a lot of people oh, yeah. uh, who have supported her as uh, their re- representative for many years. But on the other end, you could make an argument that, well, she's been there 30 years. She's the establishment, if you will. Right. But right. on paper, um, I think the constituents do have an interesting uh, choice to make. And, and honestly, I don't feel like right now there is a wrong answer for them. I just I'm so happy you said how. that, Ray. I am so happy you said because that's how I feel about this race. I feel like uh, they, they they have two good choices that will do well by the community. The one that that like I said in the interview with uh, with Amanda, the one good thing about that is that we get something new, right? And one of the things is that we wait so long to keep. We have uh, Democrats haven't done a good job in ensuring that there is a good bench, and that's why it was so hard to replace Nancy Pelosi. That's why. Biden is still there. There was not a good bench establishment after Obama at all, in my opinion, that is. Your thoughts? Yeah, and I, I think it's a, it's a big problem in the Democratic Party now. Sometimes there are instances where you have an established candidate in the party that says, you know what, I'm not going for reelection. And right. they choose, you know, someone that they feel should be the um I guess the heir apparent to the the chair, whoever is going to vote for that right. particular chair. But I just want to stress, like I, I do believe that they're they're both good candidates, and the only choice that you have to make in this particular race uh, is: do you want to go forward with youth, or do you want to keep the experience and the relationships? Because Sheila Jackson Lee does have many relationships, even right. maybe some across the aisle that, you know, Amanda would have to, you know, build up, you know. And it, the question is, do the constituents want someone who's, you know, ready to step in and, and rebuild those relationships? Or do they want someone who already has those relationships and can right. go ahead and ask for something? And most likely it will get done, you know, on the basis of those relationships. But if you notice, I um, asked Amanda that question. I I looked at her and I said, there are 435 members of Congress. Are you going to do the necessary work to actually meet with, you know, meet them and and, and start forming those alliances that you mentioned there, Ray? So that is something important that has to get done. So you're absolutely right about that. Yeah, and if I could ever, well, well, you know, like I say, I have shared space with Miss Edwards on many occasions. Uh, mm-hmm. As I am a member of different organizations, I'm not going to name which one, but um, you know, she definitely put her best foot forward in, in making her case for why she should get the seat. And I just want to say, if she is listening, you know, I, you know, support you and and your political career. I just you know, hope that you land somewhere where it, you know, does make an impact and hopefully, you know, people can see what you're able to do. I mean, I, I did see her in city council for many mm-hmm. years and, you know, I think I feel like I she think, does have another step. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, this this race isn't a foregone conclusion. I think 
she have a 50-50 chances of winning just as Sheila has a 50-50 chance of winning. Uh, I think if, if a whole, if, if Houston really votes, meaning if the ne- if the people come out and vote, I do think there's a possibility that in fact, uh, that, that uh, Amanda will pull it out. Uh, I think Sheila wins if the t- turnout is not as large as one expects. So, but again, like I said, we can't go wrong. I mean, I can't vote in that district, but we can't go wrong with whichever woman gets pulled into the, you know, whichever one gets pulled. I am kind of a bit biased towards youth, but I, I revere and have a whole lot of respect for Sheila Jackson Lee. Same here. And I, and I understand the conflict of, of the voters in that district, what they have to choose from. If I had to make a, if I had to make a decision today, I'd probably, I'd probably sit it out and, and just let them <laughs> figure it out. That, that would, in other words, you, you know, and I would do the I, same. And I abstain. <laughs> hey, that is, you know, uh, that is one word neither one of them would want to hear. But, I mean, I think a lot of us, that's what we would do. Anyway, Persuasive Barrier is in the house. Thank you so kindly for that contribution yesterday, Persuasive Barrier. I think that was you. I don't know that. Um, I don't know your if you put your actual name in the thing, but I want to thank you. Um, anyhow, folks, um, you know, I think, uh, Ray, anything else you want to say before we, we move on? Uh, no, brother, I'm just going to keep on listening. Uh, I'll see if I can get a contribution for your KPFT show. If, if there's still time for the fundraiser. Oh yeah. The I fundraiser do, is I going to be going for everything you do. I appreciate you, man. The fund drive at KPFT is going for another, I think it's another 10 days if I recall correctly. But uh, so, yeah, uh, tell your friends about it. Let them know that w- the work that we do and how important it is. But, you know, thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. I just appreciate just all of you guys that are out here because you all make things happen. So thank you so kindly. I have one more video to play before we leave. So thank you for calling, Ray. You have a wonderful rest of your day, my brother. You too, brother. All right. Thanks. Take care. Anyway, folks, yesterday I told you I wanted you to listen to this video. I want you to listen to Chuck Todd, and then we'll take it on the other side. Chuck Todd is not doing Meet the Press anymore. Maybe that is why he can be a bit more frank in his analysis. I mean, uh, here he points out something that I think should be pointed out over and over and over again. Trump has given the impression that under his presidency before COVID, that things were so great. The truth of the matter, he inherited a fairly good economy and he did nothing to really make it better for the working class, the middle class, the poor. One of his first acts, of course, was to give a humongous tax cut on paid for budget busting tax cut to a whole bunch of wealthy people. In fact, uh, at a restaurant, somebody was one of the Restaurants where all the rich folks go to, I guess it was in New York, and he looked at one of his rich buddies and said, hey, man, you're going to like uh, you're going to like your pocketbook going forward. You're going to like what I'm doing, because in effect, he was taking care of whom his class, the people that work little and make the most. That's who that's what he did. That's what he did when he was in office. He used to talk a whole lot about every week or any time he got into trouble infrastructure bill we're gonna this is gonna be infrastructure week did he get an infrastructure bill no and remember the first two years of the of the uh, trump presidency he had the senate he had the house and of course he was the president why didn't he get an infrastructure bill he could have gotten an infrastructure bill did he solve the immigration problem no he did not he never solved the immigration problem. He had all three. All three branches belong to his party. But no, the, the, the one thing he tried to do later on is a whole lot of draconian executive orders that just wouldn't pass muster with the courts. Why? Because they were dr- draconian and inhumane. So let's be clear here. The, uh, this fallacy of a, of a Trump successful presidency Pre-COVID is just that, a fallacy, an imagination, and a a, a recreation of history. And what Chuck is saying is, hey, guys, 
Biden has the responsibility of re-educating people on what a Trump presidency was. Check out how he said it, and then we'll take it on the other side. Here's the argument on the other side of the whole, he needs to make this about issues, Chuck. I mean, I'm looking at our most recent NBC News poll. He is way behind on the economy, crime, border, our standing in the world. So how do you make this a winning issues election? Well, I think what you have to do is there needs to be a couple things. I do think he has to come up with an aspirational agenda of some sort. Um, look, no, you know, I think one of the problems that Biden has with this group of voters who are negative on him right now, but don't like Trump either, is, and I've had, I've actually had conversations with these voters going, look, I, I, I don't want to go back to Trump. That was crazy, but I don't want another four years. I didn't love this four years, right? It's sort of like you're, you're saying, hey, all right, do we get another mediocre four years or do we get another horrible four years? He can't make that seem like it's the choice, right? He's got to do Barack Obama. It turned out he was wrong, but one of the ways he tried to beat back to sort of message to the moody moderates, I call them, is to say, hey, if I win again, the fever's going to break and we're going to be able to get something done. It turned out that wasn't true. The fever didn't break after he won re-election. But, it all, it, but they made an attempt in year one to break it, right? We got close with the immigration deal and all of those things. I think he's got to get at that issue, right? There's a whole mm-hmm. bunch of depressed people in the middle that don't like the dysfunction and thought, well, maybe new leadership would, would, would do the dysfunction. Here's another thing I think that the Biden campaign has to do. They got to reeducate the public at the first three years of the Trump term. I think COVID was so traumatizing to the public that we have forgotten how chaotic and frankly, unimpressive uh, Trump was as president, including the fact that the first two years he had total political control of the government and he couldn't get anything done. And I think there, Biden probably has to reeducate the public to remind them that Trump's presidency was not just not a success. It was it was a failure because he got in his own way. He could have had success. He could have solved the immigration problem. He refused to take the deal. He could have had infrastructure. He refused to take the deal. He could have had these things. He refused to take the deal. I think that's how you connect it to policy. So, yes, again, it's a re-education process. It's the process of reminding America that nothing got done under Trump and quite a bit got done under Biden. Is inflation uh, higher than one would expect? Yes. Are prices still high? Yeah. You know, the other re-education that has to go on is as follows. You know, people think that, okay, we've uh, because we hadn't had inflation in so, so long, we don't realize that prices go up. And it, except for the volatile prices, food and energy, which can fluctuate in wide ranges, the general, generally speaking, prices in the aggregate doesn't drop because of something called it would be deflationary. So what happens is prices go up, wages go ahead and meet those prices. And what you want is your wages to exceed those price increases, which then in effect shows a real growing Economy. And when we say growing, we're not necessarily talking about the absolute growth that capitalists want. What we mean is that people are doing better than before, etc. That's another long economic story. But in effect, that is what we want. Biden has started to provide that to, 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 to bend, as, as the, uh, Obama would say, it's very hard to turn that juggernaut. We are a juggernaut and making that turn is very difficult. Uh, Biden, with the help of progressives in Congress, has started doing that, but it takes some time. The last thing that we would want is to bring somebody like a Trump into office who has no clue of an economy, but does have a clue of how to pilfer to give to his class. Exactly right. How to pilfer to give to his class. Anyway, uh, in, in all these breaks, I've been checking out Fannie Willis's testimony. I can't talk about how I am so happy the way she's confronting the bullies, the Trump bullies out there. It is so important because, first of all, the media was against her this morning. Like I had to write a few tweets to say, what's wrong with you guys? It's amazing how uh, how the rapist that that's on trial, somehow everybody else that surrounds him, the media wants to be harder on them than the criminal that she's prosecuted. It is mind blowing. 
Well, she came out and said, I want to testify. And her our attorney said, no, 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 we're going to try to squash it. She said, nope, I want to testify. She jumps up there. And I've got to play one more time because I am so happy for what she did here. So let's go ahead and play this baby one more time. So your office objected to us getting um, Delta records for flights that you may have taken with Mr. Wade. Well, no, no, no. I object to you getting records. You've been intrusive into people's personal lives. You're confused. You think I'm on trial. These people are on trial for trying to steal an election in 2020. I'm not on trial, no matter how hard you try to put me on trial. So my question was, do you have any problem? I object to getting any personal records of mine. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news. Now, to- now, that's what I'm talking about. I wish more people don't get defensive. Attack. That is what she just did. I am not the one on trial here. They are the ones on trial. All of this here is nothing more than a diversion. And yes, now I am embarrassed. I'm embarrassed that I happen to have fallen in love with this guy that I hired to uh, to run the show. You know, one of those things, the heart sometimes can just be that way. And you know what? I am not going to put my hang my head down for doing this. I won't do that. The crook in this room is Donald Trump, not me. I repeat, the crook in this place is Donald Trump. It is so, so great. It is so, so great to see that uh, we have people that have no fear. But anyway, I got to close this baby down a bit earlier. I got to go prepare for another interview. So I want to tell all of my brothers and sisters, thank you so kindly for being a part of the show. But before I go, I still have to ask, please, folks, support the program. How can you support the program? By going to politicsdoneright.com slash support. politicsdoneright.com slash support. And please subscribe. Please subscribe to our uh, our newsletter. You can do that by going to politicsdoneright.com slash newsletter. Thank you so kindly, everybody, for being here. Love you all. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right. And you guys know how I end this baby. I am what? We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.